Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thanks very much for joining me today. I just finished talking with Rowan Flad about the book that he recently co-authored with Po Chen Chen called Ancient Central China, Centers and Peripheries Along the Yangtze River. This was published in 2013 with Cambridge University Press. This is actually the second time Rowan and I have spoken for the channel, and in many ways, the book that we're talking about today both integrates with, intersects with, and also differs importantly from his first book that we spoke about for the channel. This is a book that looks very carefully at a particular region in Chinese history. And this is a region that Rowan and his colleague define as central China. And we talk about what that means in the beginning of our conversation to come. And it uses that region to ask readers and to help readers to rethink the way we assume concepts of center and periphery, the way we think about space um, and the evidence through which we come up with and develop ideas of space, the kinds of regions that come into our narratives, the kinds of regions that um, go on to emerge as important in the histories that we tell. They do this and they challenge the way we think about centers and peripheries by focusing on what seems like it would be a rather peripheral area in terms of the historical record, if not the current um, political and social history of China, and that is the Three Gorges area. By using a really fascinating material archive that includes and spans animal and plant remains, walls, pottery, um, historical texts that are about the region, um, all salt materials, and lots of other different kinds of material and textual artifacts, they're showing how what we take for granted as a peripheral region, the Three Gorges region, actually turned out to be quite central in mediating exchange between the Sichuan Basin area and the Middle Yangtze area. Over the course of the conversation and over the course of the book, um, Rowan talks about and he and his co-author write about ways that we can enrich our understanding of the history, I think not just of this region, but also of other regions and other time periods as well, by moving a focus away from a strict uh, reading of political spaces, political topographies, the nation state, and outward toward topographies of ritual, of environment, of a historiography, of economics, that really transform not just the way we think about Chinese history, but also the way we tell stories about the past and conceive of the kinds of spaces that matter for our narratives and beyond. It was a really, really rich book. There's a ton of material that we didn't have a chance to talk about, so I hope you'll go on and you'll read the book. Um, it really repays an attentive reading. And I hope you enjoy the conversation. Uh, I certainly did. We're here today to talk with Rowan Flad about his and Po Chan Chen's new book, Ancient Central China, Centers and Peripheries Along the Yangtze River. Welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, Rowan. You're the first repeat interviewee. I'm really excited to talk with you today. And thanks for making time again to talk with me about um, your latest really great, really new book. 
Thanks, Carla. It's very nice to be back. Um, I had such a good time the first time around that I was delighted when you said you were willing to read another book about archaeology. (laughs) One of the things that's really interesting, and we'll we'll get to this um, pretty soon, I think, is that the first book and the second book, they're really distinct projects, but they're also related in really interesting ways. So I think there's a natural progression, um, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit in the course of our conversation. Mm-hmm. So, Rowan, the current book, um, the work that it does, and this is the ancient central China book, it traces some major transformations in central China from roughly the late 3rd millennium B.C. through the late 1st millennium B.C. It also does a lot of other really, really interesting kinds of work that bring together, in I think really productive ways, the modes and methods and conceptual apparatus of archaeology with the modes and methods and conceptual apparatus of history and um, historiography in other media and in other forms. And we'll get to that in the, in the course of our conversation. So we've already had a chance to talk about your first book, um, Salt Production and Social Hierarchy in Ancient China, an Archaeological Investigation of Specialization in China's Three Gorges. And so for a basic background, regarding what brought you into the field and how you came to work on this subject, listeners can um, absolutely go there. For today, for our conversation, can you get us started by talking a little bit about how this book that we're talking about today, the new book, Ancient Central China, relates to your previous work and then some of the important ways that it differs in terms of the nature of the project and the work that you did? Uh, yeah, I'd be happy to. And, and perhaps the best way to do that is to um, uh, explain a little bit about how the projects came to be. Um, I, uh, I, the, the, the first book, which um, came out, The Salt Production, Social Hierarchy in Ancient China, uh, that book is essentially a um, revised version of my dissertation. But it was not the first of the two to be conceptualized as a book, actually. Um, what I had been told by many uh, uh, people, including my advisors and other colleagues, um, when I first got a job, was that um, turning your book, your, your dissertation into a book was um, was not worth the time and effort because it doesn't really count for promotion's sake. So I uh, immediately moved um, after starting working to trying to um, create something a little bit broader out of my dissertation and um, working uh, at the beginning with my colleague Po Chen Chen from National Taiwan University, we decided to combine the efforts that we had um, put into our two dissertations. Both of We both worked on the same site, the site of Zhongba that was the focus of my first book um, at, for our dissertations. And But he did a kind of different approach to things and was looking at uh, the the broader um, regional context within which the site sat, where I was mostly focused on the site itself. Um, and so we decided that we would combine our efforts, create a, a book that uh, put together the best components of the two and also uh, added in some more um, material from the increasing data that was coming out from the Three Gorges at the time uh, after we had finished the dissertations, but while we were working on this uh, project. Um, So we did that, and we started working towards this book and then um, proposed it to some presses and got some very positive feedback from particularly Cambridge University Press, which is where this book and my first book were both published. Um, uh, But the reviewers wanted the book to be much broader in scope than we had uh, conceived. And... um, needing a book contract and, and so forth, we decided that would sounded good and we started moving forward. But as the book went forward, less and less of the dissertations um, 
uh, were really in it. Um, and it became its own uh, beast to itself to some extent. Um, and as that occurred, I, dis- I determined after a couple of, year- of years of working on this that um, there was a lot that I had written in the dissertation that had not come out in articles, um, and some of which had, that uh, really deserved a book-length treatment. Um, and given the fact that I was putting the context uh, within which that study sat into this book, um, that I could stand alone pretty well. And so I basically revised it, turned it around, and submitted it to some presses, including Cambridge, and they wanted it as well. Um, and so that book came out before this one, even though it was in some ways thought of as a book after this one was started. Um, so they're connected very uh, closely in some ways. And in fact, part of uh, one of the chapters in this book, the the, um, the second chapter on, uh, or I should say the first chapter on economic topographies, um, in chapter seven in, in the third part of the book, um, is a, a a summary and synthesis to some extent of the the two dissertations um, with some other stuff added in. Um, so what had originally been conceived of as the entirety of this book became one chapter essentially, wow. and then a lot of what was um, that uh, uh, what what would have been in that uh, that originally thought of book ended up in my in my first book, which ended up just being my own dissertation without uh, the, the work that Pochen had done. So actually, I should say a fair amount of uh, the stuff that he had done in his dissertation also kind of found its way into a couple of the other chapters in this book, particularly the um, uh, chapter nine, uh, Burials and Social Identity chapter of this book. Right. So can you talk a little bit about the collaborative putting the book together? Um, what practically did that involve for you? I know the research came from the two of you, but in terms of the writing process, were there any special aspects of that process as collaboration that stand out to you as important to mention or particularly notable and or that might inform other um, people's work that might be similarly collaborative? Sort of how how does one do that productively and how did you find the best parts of that process in terms of putting this book together? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, uh, So Pochin's uh, first language is not English, although his English is quite fluent. Um, But uh, he uh, and and now that he's back in uh, back in Taiwan, um, after he finished his PhD, he's been back at National Taiwan University. So his uh, the language that he most uses uh, is is his his Chinese again. Um, So the way that this most of this book went forward was. me writing things and him commenting on them or uh, him adding uh, 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 references or sections that um, were uh, that he uh, on, on issues that he was more uh, um, knowledgeable about or aware of um, and then me reworking the prose to fit the style so most of the prose is um, ultimately in my voice because I did uh, even when he wrote whole sections, like for example, a large section of chapter nine that I just mentioned, um, he it was I even told him not to try to write it in in prose that kind of connected terribly well if it had wasn't already in that format from being chopped out of a dissertation because the um, I would you know cut out sentences and move them around and so forth in order to fit the style that I think um, I'm more comfortable with um, and Pochin being a very genial, nice person all around, um, had no problems with me, uh, 
mangling his <laughs> his um, his text um, into my own uh, uh, form. But the, so, in terms of the prose, a lot of it came out of me. But some of the the ideas that um, kind of lie at the heart of the book were things that we had, in one way or another. Um, discussed either in the context of uh, graduate student seminars when we were both at UCLA um, before we finished or um, uh, ideas that we had worked out in various points over time. There's a, 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 a long diversion into uh, theories of diaspora um, in the later part of the book that um, were very much at the crux of uh, Pochen's dissertation project. Um, and so working that into uh, into the book, um, and it kind of fits very nicely with the overall point we're trying to make, um, was uh, an interesting process of me trying to distill um, both things he had written in his dissertation in English, but also an article that he has, he has published in Chinese um, into a, into the framework that we're working with in the overall argument of the book. Um, so it was quite a bit of back and forth. Um, uh, but most of it kind of emerged from due to our, our languages, uh, our, our comfort with the languages that we're dealing with, um, through kind of him commenting on things I've written in many ways. So let's get right into it. Um, so as we get into the book, the early part of the book sets out some of the basic concepts and basic background that are going to go on to be really central in developing the argument that gets articulated um, over the course of the 10 chapters of the book. Now, early on, you're introducing, um, sort of early in this introduction of the book, some of the basic concepts that are going to go on to be really important. And some of these concepts, I think, are um, ways that the project here really explicitly integrates with and articulates with the kinds of conceptual questions that not just archaeologists, but also historians, sociologists, anthropologists, other people working with uh, how to understand individuals in time and space are also um, concerned with. So let's talk about some of them, because some of them are actually um, quite innovative, I think, approaches to um, these general concepts. So one of the first ones that you introduce um, and ask us to um, to think with you about is this idea of the regionality of central China. So um, can you say just a little bit about um, the choice to focus on central China as a region and why that might be importantly different from other ways of thinking about the kinds of um, spaces and areas that you're thinking about in the book? Yeah, actually, I think this is a very important to make uh, point to make at the very beginning. And in fact, we start the very beginning of the very first chapter by defending ourselves from the um, the obvious critique of the entire book project, um, which is that we use the term central China and may not even be obvious to the listener yet in a way that may not be intuitive to um, particularly to archaeologists or historians of uh, pre-dynastic China. Um, we are talking about the region of Sichuan, the Three Gorges, and the, the Middle Yangtze River Valley of what's now present-day Hubei and Hunan, um, which uh, to the historian or archaeologists of early China um, is, uh, to put it bluntly, not correct. <laughs> that central, central China should be the Central Plains. It should be Hunan um, and the Lower Yellow River Valley and, and perhaps Shanxi and, and the Wei River Valley. Um, but in fact, um, China is a modern political entity um, with borders that extend out and, you know, around uh, Tibet and, and Xinjiang. 
um, and up as far uh, into the north as uh, as Heilongjiang and so forth. Um, and the center of the modern day People's Republic of China is uh, is well, actually, it's southern Gansu, but it's, it might as well be Sichuan. Um, and if you look at a map and uh, of of China and try to throw a dart into the middle of it, uh, you're more likely to hit um, a region that's uh, not in the central plains. Um, and the reason why we then adopted that term to uh, 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 identify the region of, of East Asia that we're focused on is partly intentionally to uh, make the reader rethink what um, constitutes a center and what constitutes a periphery, um, because the, the whole book is an effort to try to move away from uh, thinking of uh, landscapes uh, that people um, uh, interact within uh, entirely on the basis of uh, centers of political um, power um, because so much of uh, the central plains, for example, are called the central plains of, uh, of early China because they were the seats of the earliest states. Um, uh, and that's the area where the, the three dynasties that constitute the beginning of Chinese civilization emerged um, uh, according to traditional histories. And as far as we can tell, that, that seems to be uh, <clears throat> more or less accurate. And so, um, but if, if that's the center, then everything is peripheral because of the relationship to this political center. Um, and uh, it, what the book is trying to do is uh, argue that, that landscapes of human interaction are actually multifaceted on the end, that political relationships do not define um, all aspects and should not always be thought of as the, as the way in which we uh, initially or, or fundamentally look at the, um, the distribution of people and, and places of interest. That's right. Great. Thank you so much. And when you mentioned landscapes and another word that comes up early in the book and that recurs as an important touchstone um, that's related to those topographies, um, the listener, mm-hmm. I'll just mention it for the listener because, and this will come up later on, I think, in our conversation, you don't just mean um, landscapes as, you know, that's the, the trees and the, the water and the, the, what we typically think of uh, when we think about landscapes in sort of layman's terms. I mean, you're really introducing here different modes of landscape and topographical thinking that include ritual topographies and landscapes, historiographical topographies and landscapes. So this is really a way, um, as I read it, to not just um, ask us to and help us rethink what we assume to be a center in its relationship with the idea of a periphery, but also to rethink what kinds of topographies emerge out of the spaces that we study and how different ways of bringing together different kinds of material evidence, different modes of looking can actually give us a much more fluid and much more fully fleshed out picture of how identities are formed and shaped and emerged in those um, regionalities. And so it's really, really interesting. Um, And this is in in some way what the, the rest of the chapters develop. Okay, so the book explores specifically within this rubric of centers and peripheries how, in the late prehistorical and early historical periods, two political cores develop in central China. At the same time, um, peripheral regions, both between them and around them, are developing their own trajectories and are becoming central to other kinds of what you call supra-local activity. So this is a way to think about um, what these sort of centers are in what context and how we can recenter them and recenter perhaps those areas that seem to be peripheral um, 
uh, by looking at different forms of evidence. Now, the book self-consciously brings to the fore something that might otherwise be considered to be a periphery, and this is the Three Gorges region. So can you talk a little bit about this as a region and the way thinking about this as a region sort of shaped um, the way that the argument progresses in this part of the book? Yeah, and, and um, perhaps it's also useful to refer back to what I was talking about at the beginning, where how this uh, book came to be uh, at the uh, um, at the start. So the 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 site where uh, Pochin and I were doing our dissertation is a site called Jomba, uh, which is located in the western part of the Three Gorges on the eastern edge of the Sichuan Basin, um, and it's and this region is a and, and we were working there because of the uh, the Three Gorges Dam project um, that was going on in the early part of. Uh, this century, the, the dam construction and the uh, rescue uh, excavations that were occurring behind the dam in the area that was that is now the, the Three Gorges Reservoir. Um, so during this period, there's a lot of archaeology going on in, in, in the region, and previously very little had been done. And so there's a lot of new data coming out that helps us understand uh, the way how early people were there, or the ways that they were living, the relationships between sites and so forth. Um, and uh, in part, our, our hope was to uh, bring these new data to light um, to allow for a more full understanding of the broader region in which they sit. Um, but the problem with this as a as a project, and part of the reason we got the kind of initial reaction from reviewers is to to broaden the geographical scope of the project, was that the the three gorges are um, kind of have always been a periphery politically. They are an area. Um, they're a backwater. They're an area where. Uh, poets were sent to um, be punished in, in their solitude and so forth. Um, they are uh, in the Three Gorges is a place that's uh, difficult to get through and to uh, even today. I mean, it's only in the last couple of years that the um, trans uh, uh, transcontinental um, or tra- transnational highway has managed to kind of make its way through the Three Gorges without circumventing this entire region. Um, and throughout the 20th century, they were di- the um, the river, the, the Yangtze River, through the Three Gorges was a very difficult uh, place to navigate. Um, and so, the uh, as as a per- as a political periphery. Um, the goings on in this region kind of this uh, might be considered marginal, um, but we uh, through our investigation of Jomba and our understanding of these other sites realize that um, it's uh, it's kind of insufficient for a historical or, or anthropological understanding of what's going on in this region to dismiss. Um, uh, all the activities at all these sites, and particularly a kind of a large, substantial, important place like Jongba, as merely kind of epiphenomena of political uh, uh, posturing and activities in other places. Um, and in order to really understand the dynamics of interaction throughout this region, we needed to take the three gorges um, for what for themselves and understand the way people who were living in the gorges at different points in time, and particularly in prehistory, uh, would have conceptualized the world around them and, and interacted with places further afield. And so, um, in uh, our kind of complicating landscape. Um, and, the, and the nature of centers and peripheries, to some extent, is a is an effort to um, claim the three gorges as central to some narrative um, or narratives, um, and uh, and argue how it is that one can say that when politically they tend to, and we don't argue with this, they they are peripheral and they and they are still peripheral, <laughs> and they certainly have been throughout history. 
Okay, thank you. So part one of the book really sets the stage for kids' background um, for readers to understand different ways that uh, both environmentally, topographically, but also historiographically, Three Gorges region became peripheral. So after a, a chapter that really looks carefully at the environmental topography and considers very carefully how the physical environment and climate shaped political developments across central China, you turn to a chapter that looks carefully at the historiography of research. So one reason the Three Gorges have been underrepresented, as you put it um, in the book, in archaeological research in central China is has in part to do with historiographical context context in which the discipline of archaeology developed in China. So chapter three looks really closely at this phenomenon and maps out the areas that have dominated archaeological history in China and also those that have been relatively ignored. And you show the way that the Three Gorges area has been relatively ignored. Now, after looking at the context of sort of pre-1949 antiquarianism and archaeology, and then looking at, after that, the post-war era, where work on central China was dominated by a kind of Marxist interpretive paradigm, you turn to looking at what you call archaeological fluorescence and glasnost. So this is a really interesting part of this chapter, um, and it's what I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about. You argue in this part of the chapter that there was a formal opening up of the field of archaeology in China to intellectual collaboration, and that this was actually a watershed for the discipline. So can you talk a little bit about this intellectual glasnost, as you put it, in the context of um, this historiography of archaeology in China and the ways that this actually... Um, have shaped our knowledge of, or the archaeological knowledge, rather, of the Three Gorges region? Uh, sure. And th this chapter was actually a great pleasure to write. Um, uh, it was my kind of, in fact, I mean, it, it was earlier versions of it were a, a lot, lot longer than whatever, what made into the book, because I went into these long <clears throat> digressions into understanding people like Nels Nelson, and um, uh, particularly the pre-1949 stuff. I read for most of a year, kind of old uh, journals of, uh, to, to kind of explore what was going on in the early part of the 20th century. And a, a lot of it didn't, end up being coming being all that relevant to uh, the book itself but it was a lot of fun. talk about that if you like i mean feel free there's there's um these three big chapters of or these three big parts of the book that look at these three um sections so the pre-1949 the post-war and then this intellectual glasgow so feel free to talk about any part of that that you're most excited by because it's all really good stuff yeah, no, no. I mean, I, I'm actually, I, I agree that actually, what's perhaps most interesting, both to the listener and and also ultimately um, in in the understanding the historiography of this region, is what's going on uh, in the in the last few decades, um, and uh, and in fact, it's because of this glashnost um, that uh, that I was and, and Pochen were able to do what we what we uh, what we did um, and what you know the, the, the developments in uh, archaeology in China are very closely tied to um, the, uh, the the broader politics political um, trends of the nation state um, uh, which is kind of a, a a truism when it, wherever archaeology is practiced. So it's uh, inherently a political activity that is connected to modern um, uh, social act, social practices and, and norms and so forth. Um, and so not surprising to uh, and most of your listeners who are uh, aware of 20th century uh, Chinese um, political trends. Um, 
it was starting in the early 1980s that there was an opening up of the field. Um, but there was a delay, uh, as might be expected, um, in terms of the real um, uh, uh, tangible effects of the uh, political thawing that occurred um, starting uh, in the 1980s uh, with Deng Xiaoping and so forth. Um, and that tangible, and, and it, until the early 1990s in archaeology. Um, and that delay partly had to do with um, the uh, individuals who were in charge of uh, making decisions about cultural relics laws um, in China. Um, and they uh, the kind of lag that it took in terms of a generation of scholars who were really embedded um, in the 1970s in particular in a highly politicized um, atmosphere of interpreting scholarly uh, work, um, and particularly historical scholarly work um, that was uh, um, perpetuated uh, by the uh, the director of the uh, Institute of Archaeology, a, a very um, eminent scholar named Xianai, who was also very protective of the uh, the act of access to data and of the interpretive um, models that could be used uh, to understand the beginnings of Chinese civilization. Um, and as uh, things changed in the 1980s, um, and particularly with uh, with Xianai's with passing, um, the uh, uh, the kind of uh, uh, modes of interpretation of the dis discipline proliferated and diversified, and there was a general political thawing that allowed for, starting in 1991, uh, formal um, collaborations between scholars in China, uh, archaeologists, I should say, in, in China, um, and from outside of China, at least to be theoretically possible. Now, it, it took so, a few years before um, you had really substantial projects that um, emerged. Um, but in this, at the same time, where you have this um, engagement with uh, archaeologists from outside of China, you also get a, 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 a diversification of the, um, the, the talent pool, so to speak, within China. Um, people who are highly educated um, becoming increasing in numbers, going out to different parts of the country, um, uh, working on areas that had previously been ignored. Uh, uh, an emergence of a, a very kind of regional regional pride in some sense. Um, my, my former advisor, Lothar von Falkenhausen, has called this a regionalist paradigm, the development of a regionalist paradigm, where you have um, archaeologists who become um, directors of institutes within uh, provinces, uh, taking uh, particular pride in uh, the developments that took place in, in their own province, and, and that leading to, in ev almost every province, a uh, uh, promotion of the uh, variety of archaeological remains that existed, and so forth. And so you have a, throughout this period, starting the in the eighties, but really picking up steam in the early nineteen nineties, a um, development of the discipline in many different directions. Um, and one of those directions, um, as I've mentioned, was the internationalization of the discipline, with m more Chinese scholars having the opportunity to go abroad the possibility of uh, international collaborations. Um, and my my involvement and, and my classmate Pochin's involvement in the uh, work at, at Zhongba and starting the very late, at the very end of the 1990s was a direct consequence of these developments in the 1990s that made it possible for a collaboration to, for collaborations to occur for uh, students like us who were reading for PhDs in the U.S., but were able to um, collaborate with and, and enroll at um, Peking University 
and then get involved in projects and use the data from that um, uh, from that research for our own for our own dissertation projects. All of this was only possible because of this opening up that occurred really starting in the 1980s. Thank you. And you talk also um, a little bit in this chapter about the importance, and I'll just kind of flag this for listeners, the importance of the Three Gorges Archaeological Mitigation Project and the way yep. that work on the Three Gorges Dam has actually transformed archaeological work in the region as well. I don't know if you wanted to talk a little bit about that or... Well, it's interesting. There's an interesting kind of story related to that, which is um, that when the decision was finally made in the in the 1990s, early 1990s, to uh, move forward. Um, this was in 1992 uh, that the National Congress uh, finally made a decision to move forward with uh, a, a dam proposal. And this was a and the, the dam, a, a dam, some sort of dam in the Three Gorges had been proposed as early as 1919 by Sun Yat-sen, and then repeatedly over the years, the Japanese thought about doing this and started surveying in the region when they were in control of the Middle and Lower Yangtze and and so forth. And and the idea came up again um, in the 1950s. Um, Ultimately, in 1992, the the, uh, uh, the People's Congress decided to move forward once again. And in this case, it actually resulted in uh, the dam being built. Um, And when that occurred, (coughs) there was um, a decision made to... um, mitigate the archaeological and historical sites and sites of cultural significance that would be um, uh, damaged or impacted by this um, dam project um, on, uh, according to cultural relics, cultural heritage laws that existed in China. Um, and so they, uh, there was a uh, kind of concerted effort to uh, uh, kind of bring in as many archaeologists from across the country as possible to do this um, mitigation as quickly as possible. Um, but interestingly, there was a kind of shift in attitude over the course of the 90s uh, from one which was very explicitly welcoming of international collaboration in, to be involved in this project as, as a means to get more labor, more resources uh, that, that could be used um, to mitigate uh, the sites being damaged. Um, and, the, and since this was already after 1991, when it was uh, uh, legally possible to have an international collaboration. It was initially thought that this would be a, a very a good way to draw on more resources. But there was a shift um, at some point in attitudes towards one that essentially excluded international co- collaboration from the region. And probably this has to do with some sort of unwise statements by um, one or several uh, scholars outside of China uh, concerning the uh, uh, the degree to which the dam project was wise um, and uh, the perhaps a fear of providing foreign archaeologists or foreign scholars a, a leg to stand on that was somehow um, uh, uh, given official standing by the government by being part of an, an international collaboration from which they could then speak negatively about the, uh, about the dam project. Um, so there was a shift towards um, uh, exclusion of international collaboration. And so when I ended up working there, as I mentioned, <coughs> I was working as part of a, a team from a Chinese university, from Peking University. And um, although my advisor was involved in an international collaboration at that point, and I was as well, that was the, the work, the actual field work that we did was not formally part of an international collaboration, but rather made possible by one and nevertheless a, an entirely Chinese project. So there's kind of these interesting wrinkles in terms of how 
uh, the fits and starts through which um, international collaboration has emerged. And it actually continues to, it's still not entirely transparent how international collaborations are, are uh, permitted and promoted um, in China. And uh, it's, it continues to be a very um, uh, uh, bumpy process, shall I say. Thank you. So after looking at the environmental and historiographical topographies of the region, Part two of the book turns to looking at the political and cultural topographies of the region. So in three chapters of this part of the book, the book explores the traditional historical and archaeological narratives of the three major regions that the book takes on. And these are the regions of the Sichuan Basin, where the Shu policy, or the, rather the Shu polity developed in the first millennium BC. It looks at the middle Yangtze, where the Chu, um, historical accounts of the Chu, are found um, that relate to this area. And then it looks at the three gorges. So let's kind of start at the beginning and just kind of briefly go through this. Chapter four looks at the Swan Basin with special attention to the Chengdu Plain, and it focuses again on the Shu polity. You talk a lot about the importance of walls um, in this chapter in a way that's, I think, really materially interesting. So could you, for um, just kind of briefly, talk a little bit about what do readers or listeners need to know about the Sichuan Basin to understand the most important elements of the argument that you're going to be developing later? What do they need to know about this sort of culturally and politically in terms of the topography? And maybe just because I'm personally interested in it, why do walls um, come up materially as being so important in this particular region? Uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot to cover here. Um, as- <laughs> yeah, I know. Take on whatever part of that you feel uh, most interested yeah. to talk about. Um, as as you may have um, yourself uh, realized as you went through this uh, section of the book, um, uh, four, five, and six are, are very dense chapters because they are the, the, the places in which we try to uh, jam as much of the sort of cultural history as, as possible into a hopefully still readable narrative about what's going on um, in these three separate regions. Um, uh, in terms of the the archaeological data that are known. Um, and so what in chapter four, we, what is most important to understand uh, at the outset to some extent is that this is a region where um, a, uh, a polity emerged in the second millennium BC uh, that we didn't really know anything about until about 25 years ago. Um, this is, uh, some of your readers may uh, have seen, uh, your listeners may have uh, seen or heard of um, a site called Sanxing Dui, which was discovered in 1986, or at least uh, the important elements of which is, was known quite a little bit earlier than that. But um, in 1986, a couple of discoveries were made there that were, that included two pits filled with amazing artifacts, um, including a large number of bronze heads, some of which were covered in gold foil and which have now traveled around the world to um, museums here and there, including um, uh, in the United States and a couple of places, um, and have uh, and really transformed our understanding of the second millennium because prior to that, um, China was thought to be a place where in the second millennium you had state development in, in the central plains, so, which is again the um, the heart of Chinese civilization, the um, the, the place where the, the Shashang and Zhou emerged, and so forth. Um, and the the Sichuan Basin wasn't thought to be part of the story, but this site of Sanchengdui with um, with 
uh, a, a relatively large scale production of bronze objects and large numbers of jade, the use of gold in ways that were not seen anywhere else in this region um, contemporaneously. Um, throws a very interesting uh, kind of wrench into the simple, straightforward um, uh, narrative about the beginnings of complex societies in East Asia, which, uh, because clearly there was large-scale um, uh, production, uh, specialized production by of, of a, uh, prestigious objects that were uh, clearly in some way associated with the uh, establishment and maintenance of uh, uh, hierarchy and social inequality um, in this in the Chengdu Plain, and in, they were using um, artifacts that bear very little resemblance. Um, or at least uh, uh, some of them very, very, very little resemblance to those that were um, serving similar purposes in the central plains. And yet there are, there are some artifacts that really show that there's um, connections between the two regions um, and, and other regions as well. Um, <coughs> so this ties into why the walls are important. The site of Sanchindue not only included these two pits full of um, fabulous artifacts um, and another uh, several other pits full of not quite as numerous but still um, similarly uh, 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 difficult to produce uh, objects, um, but it's also a fairly large site that has um, both a wall surrounding it and um, some internal dividing walls that separate sections of the site. And we're now learning more and more about the internal structure of this uh, of this settlement as well. Um, the, but Sachinger was not the only, nor was it the earliest wall uh, wall site in this region. And around the same time as the pits were discovered at Sachinger, it became apparent that there were a number of other sites across the Chengdu Plain that also had walls around them. They were smaller sites in Sanchintai, but they had uh, earthen walls that were built um, to surround a a central area um, that presumably uh, served some uh, purpose that was greater than a uh, the, the kind of purposes associated with a single or, or uh, extended family, um, but rather were important to uh, both constructing community and also engaging larger large numbers of people in uh, in communal activities. Um, what uh, wall construction allows us to understand is the uh, the degree to which um, labor of large numbers of individuals was pulled together for a single purpose because walls had to be constructed over a period of time using a number of uh, some number of people and and part of the book in in a small section of this chapter I try to I I do a little bit of calculating well we've done a little bit of calculating to try to understand what's what the scale of the labor mobilization involved in these wall constructions was and what that says about the size of the community that was associated with these places. Um, and consequently, what then were the pre Sanchingdui communities like um, that then ultimately would have been involved in the evolution of uh, social organization that uh, led to the development of Sanchingdui itself. So um, the, the uh, investigation of walls that, uh, um, I get into here both talks about what was going on before Sanchindre, but also uh, helps us understand how um, what sorts of mechanisms exist, existed for integrating um, people into common efforts that uh, relate uh, certainly to the processes that um, eventually allowed for the people, the uh, leaders at Sanchindre, to mobilize labor to create these um, uh, bronze objects and jades, and uh, um, to access the gold and ivory that was found there, and and, and so forth. Um, so that's that's where this kind of 
uh, narrative goes. And then, and then uh, the, book, the chapter continues on to talk about what happened after Sanchendui. Sanchendui ultimately kind of collapses, but soon, soon thereafter, or more or less contemporaneous with the last part of Sanchendui, we see the emergence of um, uh, similar uh, levels of complexity in the area around modern-day Chengdu city. And from, Chung, from that point on, um, through the present day, Chengdu, Chengdu itself, the city of Chengdu and the area right around it, is the place where we seem to have the most the concentration of political power um, and, and to some extent, economic um, uh, cohesion in the Chengdu plain. Great. Thank you so much. Now, the, one of the really interesting things that happens here, and one of the reasons I'm so interested in this account here of the walls, you look at burial data later on, we're going to look at um, other kinds of you know, arrowheads, and there's other kinds of material evidence that come to play um, that wind up being really important in this part of the book, is that it's a demonstration of, I think, for anybody who's working historically, thinking historically, or trying to write and come up with any kind of argument about the past, it's a really wonderful demonstration of how to read um, fragmentary material evidence in order to come up with some really compelling, I think, arguments about cultures and sort of political situations of the past in a way that's, I think, quite inspiring. Um, and so I was particularly, actually, there's a lot of information in these three chapters, but it's a lot of mm-hmm. interesting information that models how to read fragments. Thanks. It's nice to hear that because... Uh- uh, yeah, so don't so don't worry about um, the the density. I think it's actually really productive in that way. Um, so the to sort of to because I want to make sure that we get to some of these other really interesting kinds of evidence. I'll just kind of mention for listeners. There's a chapter that comes out of this, or that comes rather after the chapter on the Sichuan Basin, that focuses on the other dominant re- political region that you mm. um, talk about here. This is the Middle Yangtze region. This was the political core of the Chu state for most of its existence, um, and it's actually, as you demonstrate here, really different from the states that we see in the Sichuan Basin, in that it became here um, a, an urban state. Right. Um, and as you put it here, that was within the sphere of, I think this is a quote, literate bronze producing peer polities around the central plains during the Zhou period. So you also talk about this other kind of um, political center and look at the kinds of evidence that we have to, for understanding that. Now, you're arguing ultimately in this part of the book that long term changes in both of these dominant regions, right? The Sichuan Basin, as we just talked about, the Middle Yangtze, as I just briefly mentioned, were actually not independent of each other. And in fact, that may they may have been mediated by the area in between the political centers. And so the next chapter turns to looking at that area. And this is the area of the Three Gorges. Chapter six looks closely at this um, Three Gorges region of Chongqing. Now you mentioned here, um, this is an important uh, way that the book intersects with the history of ethnicity and the history of ethnography. This is a region that's been traditionally associated with what you call quasi-historical ethnic groups, including the Ba. Okay, now one of the really interesting things that's happening in this chapter, again, that for me really models the way to read his, uh, archaeological evidence to create these arguments about political and cultural transformations, is you're reading material evidence here evidence of possible changes and transformations in the movement of populations. So can you talk a little bit about that? How do we get population movements out of the evidence that you've seen here? And how is that central to, or is that central to your argument about the way that this region functioned relative to these other dominant political regions? 
Yeah, um, it's like it's a complicated process because there's always the um, in archaeology it's common to say that um, pots don't equal people, right? And so uh, there was, and what that refers to is the tendency, particularly in the uh, late 19th and early 20th century to associate peoples with a certain type of material culture. Um, and so that uh, the, the funnel beaker culture of uh, Central Europe has a particular ethnic affiliation that then can be traced. And when you see these objects in, uh, in a new area at a certain point in time, they then that represents the movement of peoples into that area. Um, and so there's this uh, uh, resistance to in generally in archaeology these days to um, making a simplistic associations between um, a, a, a single or a small number of aspects of material culture and uh, an ethnic uh, association. Nevertheless, we um, also know that um, there are different ways of doing things that are uh, uh, um contemporaneous in a, in a, a broader regional landscape. And that sometimes these ways of doing things do, uh, do uh, are affiliated with or associated with um, the way in which people both identify themselves and identify themselves vis-a-vis others in relation to other groups. Um, and so the, one of the difficulties in archaeology, and particularly in prehistoric archaeology, but in historical archaeology as well, um, is trying to... Uh, understand how we can use material culture to help us understand population movement um, and political and um, ethnic affiliation um, without falling into the simplistic fallacy of pox equaling people. <clears throat> and so, <clears throat> excuse me, um, the, uh, in, the ch- in the chapter on uh, the central Yangtze River Valley, um, we know from historical documents quite a bit about the Chu state, um, this polity that, as you mentioned, um, has a very different relationship in terms of its emergence um, to the Central Plains. It is one of the, um, the, the, nation, the various uh, nation states that um, uh, emerged in the, in particularly in, in the first millennium BC um, as uh, uh, Polities were competing with one another for power, um, and, and particularly in relation to the Zhou uh, kind of the, the Zhou hegemony. Um, but um, and so we know that the, this polity existed, um, and yet we have archaeological sites across the region in which the Chu was located that probably represent communities that had very different relationships. Each one of them with. Um, this uh, nominal uh, hegemon in the region is the, with the Chu state itself and, and, the, and the elite uh, lineage that, that ruled the Chu. And so archaeology can be very informative about what's going on at many of these individual communities. Um, and particularly archaeology of burials, as we get to later in the book, uh, can be used to try to investigate um, how people were uh, identifying themselves through ritual practices in relation to the rituals that helped keep the elite in power to so um to some extent um and so what the we try to do in throughout these three chapters but then also later in in the book is um be sensitive to what it is that the material culture we're dealing with really represents and so chapters four five and six um, are reliant on um and now particularly analyses of pottery and of settlement structures um, that are 
remnants of people's daily lives and represent um, alt- um, minimally, they represent traditions of pottery production as, as far as the pottery is concerned and uh, traditions of architecture as far as the, um, as far as the buildings are concerned, um, which we believe are um, reasonably good proxies for uh, connections among people that have some relation to uh, social identity, ethnic identity, and so forth, but without trying to make the leap to saying pots are equal to people, because we know that traditions can be shared. Uh, they can be changed within a, within a group that um, holds a, ethnic identi- uh, a particular ethnic identity, and ethnic identities are, are um, constantly being recreated and, and contested in, in various contexts as well. And, and in fact, when we um, the place we get into that discussion most explicitly is in our discussion discussion of burials um, and in the discussion of the, of the Chu diaspora later on in, in, in the book, <laughs> where we, uh, we try to complicate some of the kind of simplistic associations between pots and people. So let's actually, um, let's get there pretty soon. So before we get there, I just want to um, very quickly, though, um, get to the chapter that precedes it. Okay, so after mm-hmm. part two of the book, where we've looked at these other kinds of topographies, part three of the book takes us into um, ways of working out and thinking about identity in the Three Gorges region in these really, really fascinating case studies, some of which you've mentioned, looking at burials, looking at um, graphias, looking at divination, but also in uh, Chapter 7, looking at the economic topography of the region. So in this part of the book, you're really showing the way that the Three Gorges region, on its own terms, was economically a really crucial zone of communication and interaction. So it shifts the way we think about the Three Gorges as a center or as a periphery, and you're really creating a way to think about this as a a crucial zone in its own right. The material evidence that goes into creating this argument is evidence that rests on um, animal remains, plant remains of various sorts, and also material evidence for the importance of salt production in the region. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about the importance of salt production in this region, making it such a crucial zone of interaction, and the kind of evidence that you were drawing on that lets you to come to the conclusion um, about the the nature of the salt production that (coughs) this region uh, sure yeah I mean now this of course is where uh, this book ties most directly into my first book um, it, uh, um, and it's the argument here which is uh, essentially the, arg- the entire argument of, of the first book is that uh, salt production at Zhongba, but not limited to Zhongba, but Zhongba was perhaps one of the most important of the locales throughout the three gorges um, that fed into this was a was the, one of the primary reasons why people from outside, particularly those associated with uh, the uh, with the Chengdu Plain area, but in more more uh, those who were associated uh, who were living in the central Yangtze River Valley, got interested in the Three Gorges to begin with. Um, and uh, you, we see through the material culture um, and the connections that you that you can identify. Um, between material culture within the three gorges and other regions, that there is a kind of fluctuation over time in the in the direction of influence and and affiliations uh, in one period towards the Chengdu Plain area, in another, um, and then increasingly over the first millennium towards the um, the central uh, Yangtze River area, and that relates to uh, almost certainly some movement of peoples and. Uh, it, 
both uh, to be uh, you know to be exposed to new traditions of, of, of artifact manufacture, but also people moving into the region. Probably um, in the middle second millennium, it seems quite clear that there are some uh, there's some direct influence from the uh, the Chengdu Plain, for example, um, and. <coughs> Why that was, uh, why that occurred, and why it became important to the broader uh, political and economic changes in, in this lar- in this region we're calling Central China, uh, relates uh, in large part to salt. Um, in the elsewhere in the, the Sichuan Basin, salt was available. Salt is um, present in the Sichuan Basin because it was a um, buried uh, inland sea where salt deposits uh, were de- were laid down as a as a sea in the Pliocene called the Tethys Sea evaporated. Um, and then those sediments, those uh, salty uh, sediments, um, were were buried uh, re- rather deeply in the center of the plain, but around the peripheries of the, of, the, of the Sichuan Basin, like in the Three Gorges, and also to the north and west of the Chengdu Plain, um, the salts were, uh, or, or salty water, I should say, brine, was relatively accessible. Um, and that may, and salt can be very salt can be very important, particularly to agricultural populations that depend largely on agriculture for their subsistence. Um, and so, once salt was identified in certain locales, it became to it, it started to be uh, accessed preferentially, and then and then specialized production emerged in certain locations. Um, importantly, for the overall story here, it, the, the Middle Yangtze River has very few. Um, salt resources on which to draw. And as populations in the Middle Yangtze River uh, got larger, particularly during the first millennium as the Chu state uh, consolidated populations into urban uh, centers and so forth, and populations grew most likely, uh, at least in part due to uh, the developments of agriculture in the region, um, salt became increasingly necessary, not only um, as a as kind of uh, biological necessary but necessity but also as a flavor enhancer as an element of cuisine that was used to uh, kind of identify uh, certain types of foods as being important to social identity of a, of a people in a particular region and so forth um, and um, and so the Chu region became increasingly reliant on salt from other places now those other places could be Coastal sources; they could be um, other inland sources around salty lakes. Uh, but in the in the Middle Yangtze River itself, there are very few places, or really no sources of salt. And so, uh, the Three Gorges was one of those most geographically proximate areas from which uh, abundant salt remains could be accessed. If one, if the the people living in the Middle Yangtze could find a way to get there easily, and the Three Gorges and the surrounding mountains prevent. Um, to some extent, the e- easy uh, uh, movement of peoples in that direction. Nevertheless, it's not that far away, and, and where there's a will, there's a way. To some extent, so um, you see, that salt becomes important for what's the developments going on in the Central Yangtze River Valley, and that makes the Three Gorges and the people who are living there, making salt and doing other things, um, important important players in the way in which. Uh, the Chu state in particular was expanding and engaging with other places, um, and also the way in which the Middle Yangtze River and the, and the <coughs> Sichuan Basin were connected to one another. Great. Thank you so much. And I know we could talk for another couple of hours just about that material. <laughs> so I'll just um, signal for our listeners that it's a really rich chapter and to definitely focus in. There are um, tiger bones or perforated tiger teeth and elephant tusks and cowrie shells and all kinds of good stuff. 
Now, I, I can't let you go before I ask you a little bit about these ritual topographies, because these were two of my favorite, favorite chapters, and it's one of the most fascinating parts of the book. Chapters 8 and 9 focus on the geography of ritual activity, and look in particular at three kinds of ritual deposits, sacrificial pits, divination, and burials. Now, the remains of these kinds of practices have particular spatial patterns, and thus they create, they, they not only pres- preserve and reflect, but they also create certain kinds of space in a way that's really, really interesting. Now, focusing on these kinds of topographies, environmental, ritual, economic, really does um, the kind of work in this book that is really important to the argument that you're developing in that it rests the focus away from the dominant story of political topographies and gives a different way to understand the kind of phenomenon that you've been talking about in this later part of the conversation, and that is how local identities were produced in central China. So this is, becomes a story about different kinds of space, different ways not just of mapping but also created space, or creating space rather, and in particular the way that this created the material foundation for the development of different kinds of local identities that weren't just tied to political affiliation. It's a really, really interesting part of the book. So one of um, the kinds of sites that you look at here that's really fascinating, I'm just going to ask you to talk a little bit about it, is the um, sacrificial sites in central China. Now, there are three different kinds of them that actually offer three different kinds of windows onto society. There are these large-scale public sacrifice rituals. There are these sort of more private but sacrificial pits. And then there are these remote sacrificial sites in upland regions. Can you talk a little bit about the way that you're taking this material evidence from sacrificial sites and generating it into an argument about what's happening here in terms of local identity. If you wouldn't mind. Yeah, I mean, yeah, sure. This is, um, so as you pointed out, the, um, both this chapter number eight and, and the subsequent chapter were, um, really our most explicit attempts to try to <coughs> draw um, attention away from the standard narrative of political uh, and economic centers and their effects on peripheral areas um, to make the reader rethink what centers and peripheries are uh, at a, both a local scale and at a larger scale. Um, and uh, I, I am, have had a kind of longstanding interest in um, different types of ritual activities, um, several of which are dealt with here, the sacrifices that you talk about, also divination activities, for, uh, which we find evidence of in, in all of these regions that we're dealing with, um, and which have kind of connections to uh, uh, more well-known um, uh, divination practices in the Central Plains and so forth. But the sacrifices were really interesting because um, sacrifice is a very broad and diverse phenomenon um, that uh, can manifest itself in, uh, in different ways. Um, and and uh, is related to um, uh, kind of the construction of social identity in different ways, depending on how sacrifices is, uh, manifests itself and the, and the, the visibility of it, um, the, the nature of the um, things being sacrificed and so forth. Um, and so I found it very interesting in, um, and it's, it's helped me understand quite a bit about how uh, the people in these different regions that we're dealing with um, were engaging in 
broadly similar activities of disposing of materials um, in a ritualized context um, uh, in very different ways, and that that tells us something about how these places were really were somewhat different from one another, or times in some to some extent. Now, so to, to get what I mean by that that latter point, I'll, I'll focus a little bit on one of the comparisons I make, which is in the Chengdu Plain, we see um, evidence of sacrificial destruction of artifacts um, that are broadly analogous in two places that I previously mentioned. One is the, one is the site of San Qingdui, and the, uh, the other is um, the, the city of Chengdu in a period that postdates San Qingdui. So in these two places, we, we have kind of vaguely similar um, events of, of disposal um, in the, in Sanchengdui, large pits filled with um, uh, you know fabulous artifacts that I described before um, that occurred on several at least several different occasions of so these ritual destruction events, and then at, uh, at, and then at a place at a locus called Jinsha in the city of Chengdu, which uh, postdates uh, Sanchengdui by a couple centuries, we see some similar objects. Uh, placed in uh, in um, pits, ritually deposited, but at much smaller scale and many more uh, and much more frequently. And what this re- represents to me is um, a tradition that continues of destroying similar types of objects, but that has taken on a very different role in uh, in the in the period when we have the remains from the, the city of Chengdu. Um, Whereas they in the in the Sanchengdui case, there are these public ritualized events that probably brought large numbers of people together in, as a community activity, and most likely played a very significant role in um, substantiating the claims of certain members of the of the uh, community to be in leadership positions. Um, in the in the latter in, in, in the later case in um, uh, around Chengdu, we seem to have a much more personal individual um, engagement with this type of ritual activity. I think it was probably competitive (coughs) ritual destruction among individuals who were all part of an elite class. And so it serves the same same sort of same general um, type of ritual activity served a very different purpose, I think, in these two societies that were historically related to one another and were engaging in in related activities, but to different ends. And I think that looking at the details of, of sacrifice helps us understand these things. And, and then what's going on in the central uh, Yangtze is, is um, altogether different. Um, you have bronzes being placed in these remote locations, um, bronzes that will clearly would have taken a lot of effort and um, uh, <coughs> resources to create. Uh, but they were clearly being used in some sort of engagement with the natural world. Um, and uh, uh, that also probably had a, played a, a role in, in um, in establishing relationships among people that were political to some extent in nature. But this was a a ritual activity that was separate from the day-to-day politics um, that uh, were uh, situated primarily in urban centers. And they were decidedly not situated in those same places. They were situated in other places that were ritually sanctified in some sense. And that, by looking at these types of behaviors, as centers of a particular type of activity, we start to break down uh, the kind of homogeneous landscape into these, these topographies that we talk about. Um, yeah. That's awesome. And I'll just sort of just what you said, um, the way you described that just now also makes me think there's, this isn't just um, the fodder for histories of ritual practices or sacrifice. There's a way of thinking about this as a kind of history of destruction. Mm-hmm. Also just 
super cool. <laughs> okay, Rowan. Well, I've taken up a huge amount of your time, and so um, I, ju- I don't want to take up too much more. So I'll just mention for listeners, um, just to, to make them aware of it, that there's also a chapter that comes after this that does a really similar, very interesting and sensitive um, analysis of and treatment burials and burial practices and looks at the ways that the burials help us understand both how the Three Gorges was integrated into larger networks, economic, political, ideological, social, and the ways that people were actually marking themselves, marking others, and creating forms of social identity through burial practices. And so it's another really, really rich chapter. Um, and I just want to let listeners know that it's there and there's a lot of really interesting material in it. Okay. Um, so there's obviously a ton of material in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. It's one of the wonderful things about the book is that it's such a rich study and it really repays, I think, reading and rereading. And there's a lot in here. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about of the many things but that you'd like to mention for listeners and against, um, especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book? Yeah, I mean, one thing I would like to say is that the, the concluding chapter, which is it's quite short, um, is one of the ways in which we try to draw, as one does with a concluding chapter, the, the points together, but also uh, show how this approach to understanding regional interaction um, relates to the ways that some other scholars have, have looked at things um, in, in very different historical and cultural settings. Um, and potentially shows the, the usefulness of um, questioning our uh, um, expectations or our preconceived notions of centers and peripheries. Um, we, we go into a small amount of detail about a couple of very different cases that um, where, or, where David Carrasco, for example, in, in the Aztec world has talked about um, kind of reconceptualizing centers and peripheries and how Tina Thurston has worked on a similar uh, kind of comparison of different types of, she calls them landscapes, but basically what we mean by topographies in understanding what's going on in, in um, early Scandinavia. And um, why I bring, uh, wanted to bring this up is that there's um, something that, uh, that really got me started thinking in this direction uh, that I'd like to mention, um, which has to do with a relatively influential concept that was introduced in the 1980s by a woman named Carol Crumley called heterarchy, mm. um, which um, es- essentially was an argument that she and others made um, to uh, break down the concept of hierarchy um, in many contexts where it's not a single a pyramidal structure that um, organizes society with a king at the top, for example, but that in uh, many social contexts, we see multiple simultaneous hierarchies interacting with one another. And the most obvious example that comes to mind is the, the kind of church and state in medieval, in medieval Europe, right? Um, should be familiar to most people, <laughs> even at a kind of superficial level. Um, well, that, that, uh, heterarchical um, notion of the way power relates, uh, power relations um, are structured in society um, can be made spatial. 
Uh, and that's partly what we're trying to do in this book. Um, I, I, I tried to introduce the, the term geographical heterarchy at some point, but I don't think I actually made it into this book. <laughs> um, uh, but, it, but that's really kind of what we're, we're talking about is the spatial notion of heterarchy and how um, there are multiple ways of seeing centers and peripheries within a region um, and that it's useful to, at least heuristically useful, to pull those apart before you put them back together to see how they overlap and how they don't. Um, and so I, this point I think we've made throughout this conversation, but it, it, as the conclusion brings us back to that, I think it's nice to bring the conversation back to that way uh, as well. And also to point the listeners to um, a little bit of where the theoretical origins of that came from um, in Crumley and Crumley's work and others who are dealing with this notion of heterarchy. Fabulous. And it's just um, one more way in which I think this study is so fabulous insofar as it really is something that can be used and extended to and can inform the way any of us who think about and work on the past do our work. And so thank you so much. So now that the book is done and it's out, Rowan, what's next for you? Are there any projects that are currently inspiring you and what can we hope to read next? Well, um, this year I'm at the Stanford Humanities Center, um, where I am having a, a wonderful respite from uh, all things related to day-to-day -day duties back at work. Um, and while I'm here, I am trying to um, work with my colleagues to write up the um, uh, five years of archaeological survey we did in the Chengdu Plain starting in 2005 and uh, analyze the many thousands of points of data that we have and uh, come up with some interesting uh, tales to tell about what those data mean. Um, so the, the kind of near term is really a focus on understanding in more detail some of the processes that we outline in, in this book, um, but with, uh, with new data that we've collected over the course of a, of a, a large-scale international collaborative project that I um, was uh, engaged in with people from Chengdu and Sichuan and Beijing and so forth. Um, so that's the, the near future, and <clears throat> hopefully within the next um, within this year, I'll have made a lot of headway on that. Um, and uh, in sometime uh, in the slightly more distant future, I'm hoping to um, work with some colleagues on a kind of pan Eurasian uh, overview of of what was going on at about 2000 BC. <laughs> Um, because I think that there's a lot of hist historians and scholars of various fields who like to think of um, the axial age and the first millennium as, a, as a, a critical time where similar things were going on in different parts of, uh, of the world. I think that there's, there's another axial age in the, around the beginning, uh, end of the third millennium, beginning of the second millennium that, is, has, that deserves con concerted attention. Um, unfortunately, I can't delve right into that right now, but sometime in the future. <laughs> well, fabulous. Well, thank you so much, Rowan. Best of luck on this current work. You're both your near term and your little bit more medium. Thanks, Carla. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.